Welcome to the Seedfield Podcast, the show where Antiochians share their knowledge, tell their stories, and come together to win victories for humanity. I'm your host, Jasper Nighthawk. Have you ever had the experience of doing something that you've done a thousand times before, like maybe you're cleaning your house or driving across town or getting ready for bed, and at some point you catch yourself and you realize that you don't really know or you can't remember what you've been doing. Did you change lanes? Why are you all the way over in the right? Or did you already sweep this room? Or have you washed your face yet or do you still need to do that? This happens to me pretty regularly. And I sometimes call it like, oh, I was just running on autopilot. Like I just wasn't generating memories. I didn't even notice what I was doing. Um, but there's this larger question that I think this this experience raises, which is if this happens all over our lives, we're like blundering through life in the rut of our routines. Does this impact the way that our lives have meaning? And on a bigger scale than that, what if we also stop seeing the things that are in our society, these problems of like real social injustices. We can't see the people who are living without shelter on the freeway on ramps because we've learned not to see them. Or we stop seeing the cruelty of a carceral state that responds to bad behavior by locking people in concrete buildings for decades. And this question I think expands even further. If it's a problem that things become so familiar to us that we can hardly see them as they are, what we need is something that can make our, wor our world seem unfamiliar again. We need for the world to become defamiliarized. So today we're joined by the writer and teacher, Alastair McCartney, for a conversation about precisely that, the literary theory called defamiliarization, which suggests that art and literature can do this. They can help us see the familiar or the habitual with fresh eyes. Alastair is teaching faculty in the MFA in creative writing at Antioch, Los Angeles, and he recently gave a seminar on precisely this concept, defamiliarization. So I'm really excited that we have him here to pick his brain about this topic. I want to introduce him a little bit more slightly. So Alastair teaches in the MFA. He's also teaching faculty in undergraduate studies here at Antioch, Los Angeles. He also is an Antioch alum. He came to the MFA in the first year that that program was started, and he's been teaching at Antioch since 2001. He curates Antioch's Literary Uprising reading series and helps advise the undergraduate journal, Two Hawks Quarterly. Beyond Antioch's walls, Alistair is also known for his two inventive award-winning novels, The End of the World Book, which was published in 2008, and The Disintegrations, which came out in 2017. So Alistair, welcome to the Seedfield Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Jasper. It's it's a pleasure to be here. And yeah, I really loved listening to your introduction about the, the topic we're going to talk about today, defamiliarization. Your intro to it was really grounding, actually. Oh, that's wonderful. I, I wrote the intro after listening to a recording of the of the seminar that you had taught. But before we get into the actual topic of defamiliarization, I want to stop for a minute. We always do this at the beginning of the podcast. And because our, our voices coming over the air, we're, we're kind of familiarized to the idea that we put on a podcast and our voices just drop out of the ether. But I like to help our listeners know what positions we're coming from. And especially when we're talking about issues of power, issues of social justice, I think it's really important that we disclose our own positions. So I'll go first. For myself, 
I, I think it's useful for listeners to know I'm a white cisgendered man, an American citizen by birth. I have both a college and a graduate degree, and I'm not currently living with a disability. So I have, I have a great deal of privilege that also extends to being housed, having a stable income. And I also want to disclose, because this might come up in our conversation, that my own sexuality, while being complicated, I currently live in a monogamous relationship with a woman. So Alistair, would you mind letting our listeners know as much as you're comfortable, some of the, some of the details that make up your own position in society? Yeah, absolutely, Jasper. And I would say like you, I share a number of those privileges as a white male, as someone who's very, you know, fortunately housed within the the complex housing landscape of Los Angeles. I'm a gay white male, sometimes a queer white male, depending on what context I'm talking about my identity in. And I am an American citizen but I was born in Australia, and so I came to my citizenship through the green card process, and I was, wasn't able to obtain my citizenship until I was able to be married to my husband, who I've uh, been partnered with since we met in 1994. You know, I was living in the States for a long time as a student on student visas, as an employee of Antioch on multiple work visas. But then it wasn't until 2013 when DOMA was overturned and same-sex marriages were allowed on a federal level and were then granted the legal benefits of that. And the main one that I was really focused on was obtaining a green card and then citizenship through marriage. That I guess that's a long way of kind of explaining some of the layers of my, my identity. No, I think that I thank you for disclosing all of that. And I think that it's it's really relevant also because the way that we experience society is so mediated by our own background and it, it kind of allows you to see different sides of our society. I mean, if you do not have an experience of the immigration system, you might sort of assume that everybody has access to the same privileges throughout society and not realize that there are whole classes of people who are relying on complex kind of green card processes, paying large amounts of money to lawyers, wading through bureaucracy, and sometimes being kicked out of the country where they want to live. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm, I'm very aware of my privilege as a white person navigating the immigration system, but then it was complicated just by the fact that it was an incredible struggle to, to stay here, incredibly expensive for many years. I feel like your background as a Australian who immigrated to the US actually provides an interesting entry point into the topic of defamiliarization. Absolutely. Um, because I think I think that, that that word defamiliarization, I mean, it's kind of a mouthful. It's like, how would you even spell it? But I think we, a lot of us have had this experience, maybe not of being immigrants, but of traveling to someplace new, a new country, a new city, and finding that things are unfamiliar. Like because you you grew up somewhere else, you're able to see the customs and the built environment even that shows you kind of the arbitrariness of the rules of society. You came to the U.S. and you had this outsider view. And like, what was what was that experience like? Were you able to see some of these societal structures that other people took for granted? Yeah, you know, it's just thinking back, you know, I've been here a long time. And so in some ways I've gotten very habituated just to being in the States. 
in some ways, there's more, uh, I found, especially California, somewhat of an uncanniness about it, because in some ways, California is very similar to Western Australia, where I'm from. So it's both familiar, but then also deeply unfamiliar in terms of, you know, the state where I'm from, very sparsely populated, you know, Perth's always referred to as the most isolated, industrialized city in the world. So there was both the familiarity and the unfamiliarity, which I was very aware of. What sparks to my mind, though, in some ways more is how Americans related to me. And I feel like that somehow as soon as many of them would hear an accent that I wasn't from here, I feel like it would in some ways, it's also, I think, a privilege again, you know, it goes back to whiteness, but it somehow... I felt like that at times I kind of got a little bit of a pass in terms of, oh, because I wasn't born and raised here. I think some people would feel more comfortable around me than they might say around white Americans, just be, if that okay. makes sense. Yeah. Especially maybe people who were not themselves white Americans. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and that's, I don't want to speak for them, but I felt like that, you know, sometimes people would actually say that to me. It was just a little bit, it gave me a sort of a, an an outsider status in that respect that I was very aware of at times. But yeah, I mean, I think that familiarity, unfamiliarity, dichotomy is something that's quite pertinent to the concept of defamiliarization. It also seems pertinent to just becoming a writer. Absolutely. That kind of insider, outsider status. And I think, you know, as a queer person, it was always there for me as well, just in terms of, you know, to be a white queer person, a white queer male, you know, you're inside and outside of different privileges. You know, you're both. Yeah. Yeah. You're both privileged, but then placed askew to it. So it's a position that I was sort of familiar with in terms of seeing before, before coming here, but I'm sure very much fed my turning to writing as a way of, you know, relating to the world. That makes total total sense to me as another writer. Let's get into this specific term, defamiliarization, and and talk about it as a literary term. So if it's okay with you, I will give my kind of pocket definition, uh, which I've thought thought about how to how to present it, and then you can hopefully fill in kind of maybe anything I'm getting wrong or missing. Sure. All right. So the concept I, I studied Russian in college. So I actually read this initial essay that this this Russian writer and theorist, Viktor Shklovsky wrote and pub- he published it in 1917. And the, the essay, it's titled Iskustva kak priyom, which means art as technique or art as device. This word priyom means like, has, has multiple translated meanings. I always really like this second translation, art as device, because it kind of emphasized how art could be this device. It could actually do something. And the thing that it would do is to make what seemed familiar or habitual be, seem strange again. So it would take these regular, common, normal parts of our societies and our lives, and the reader might take them so for granted that they hardly see them, like they couldn't see them. They would just be like, oh yeah, that's a car. And it would reveal them to us like it was the first time we'd ever seen them. It would defamiliarize some aspect of the world that had become invisible to us. So that's kind of my pocket definition. We can, we'll look at an example, but like, what am I missing? And if I'm not missing that much, like what is exciting to you about this? Well, I think you do a really great encapsulation of the term. And I love that, unlike me, you've read Shklovsky in, in Russian and are familiar with the, the intricacies of the translation of technique versus device. 
But I would say what excites me about it is just when I first encountered the concept, the clarity of the concept. I was very immediately drawn into this notion that Shklovsky defines that the purpose of writing is to, as he says, to make the stone stony, is to impart the stone, the stoniness of the stone. And it felt like, even though he clearly gets more complex about the concept of defamiliarization or estrangement is a term people sometimes use in place of defamiliarization. I would say the simplicity and the clarity of the concept really struck me in terms of the function of writing. Just this idea that he's imparting that, as you said, as humans, we tend to become very numb to the world around us and habituated to it. And then our task as writers is simply to refresh readers' memories and alertness to the stoniness of the stone and the thingness of things to the world around them, both on a very immediate level, but then also, as I think you mentioned in your intro, it has much broader implications in terms of thinking about the politics of the world. And defamiliarization definitely has a a social function as well. But I think at first I was just drawn into the fact that it's a very precise aesthetic concept, but then Shklovsky gets more complicated as he unwraps the different ways writers can defamiliarize and where, you know, it's a concept that was very, I think, very important to experimental writing in the 20th century and modernism. And I think it also has functions way beyond that. Yeah. Is that making sense? That makes a lot of sense. And I I'm, thank you for expanding expanding on that and getting into kind of the excitement at its core. I think, I mean, we're obviously not going to have time to unpack all of the different intricacies of, of Shklovsky's theory and then the people who've built upon it. But I want to I look at an example. And so I arranged with you to have this example before you. And it's it's an example that Shklovsky uses from War and Peace and that you actually highlighted in your recent seminar. And in it, one of the characters of War and Peace, Natasha, is going to the opera. And, you know, Tolstoy could describe it kind of using the opera critical language that we have of like, oh, and now there's the in the libretto, you know, the tenor sings a passage about his love for the diva. But instead, he he gives kind of a more maybe anthropological description that I think is 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 a key example of defamiliarization. Does that does that set it up right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's hard to imagine, you know, Tolstoy is such a foundational point for Shklovsky to come up with this technique. You know, he starts the essay by quoting that just beautiful passage from Tolstoy's diary that you paraphrased about doing some cleaning and then not being able to remember whether you cleaned or not. And then he shifts to this passage from War and Peace to present the first concrete example of what he sees as defamiliarization. So it's it's almost hard for me to imagine this concept without Tolstoy, even though when I teach the seminar to my students, I'm always really trying to push the fact that this concept can be expanded to writers whose positionalities are utterly different from Tolstoy's. So it's not just privileged to a very distinct writer in Russia in the 19th century. Yeah. Well, would you read this passage? Yeah, of course, Jasper. The middle of the stage consisted of flat boards. By the side stood painted pictures representing trees, and at the back a linen cloth was stretched down to the floorboards. 
Maidens in red bodices and white skirts sat on the middle of the stage. One, in a white silk dress, sat apart on a narrow bench to which a green pasteboard box was glued from behind. They were all singing something. When they had finished, the maiden in white approached the prompter's box. A man in silk with tight-fitting pants on his fat legs approached her with a plume and began to sing and spread his arms in dismay. The man in the tight pants finished his song alone. Then the girl sang. After that, both remained silent as the music resounded, and the man, obviously waiting to begin singing his part with her again, began to run his fingers over the hand of the girl in the white dress. They finished their song together, and everyone in the theatre began to clap and shout. But the men and women on stage, who represented lovers, started to bow, smiling and raising their hands. Thank you for reading that. You have such a beautiful reading voice too. So it's a pleasure to get that on the on the podcast. <laughs> but can you unpack this a little bit for us? How is defamiliarization working here? Sure, Jasper. And as I was saying, this is such an important passage in terms of presenting to the reader what this concept is about. I would say what Shklovsky points out in this passage and why he uses it is that here, so Tolstoy is describing Natasha's first visit to the opera. And I think the fact that it's her first visit is very important because, as Shklovsky says, the function of defamiliarization is for the writer to present to the reader the world anew, so we're experiencing it as if for the first time. And what Tolstoy is enacting in this passage, and Shklovsky is really clear to point out, is the artificiality of the scene. You know, opera is something that we can often assume, oh, it's high culture, it's really important culture, it's culture for a specific audience. But here we're getting this, and, you know, of course it's in translation, so I'm not sure if you've ever read Tolstoy in Russian, but I'd be interested to know how the passage reads in Russian. But there's a real kind of flatness and objectivity to the description of the scene. We're not getting any adjectives or any language to talk about how beautiful or how grand the scene is. Everything's being described very, this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. We're very drawn to the fact that everything is taking place on a stage, and it's not natural but artificial. You know, there's that last sentence, the men and women on stage who represented lovers started to bow. So clearly we're not getting this sense that the scene that's being enacted are actual lovers, but everything's a representation. You know, there's the flat boards, there's the painted pictures representing trees, there's the green pasteboard box glued from behind. Everything is being presented by Tolstoy in this scene to alert the reader to the fact that everything is artifice and opera is actually, rather than being this sort of cultural practice that we should take for granted as high culture, that opera is this, you know, very artificial practice. It's almost, you know, it's Shklovsky is really an anticipating Brecht and his notion of, uh, if I'm remembering the German correctly, the Verfremdungs effect, that the function of art is to present to the world the fact that the world, that nothing's natural. If uh, I'm putting it somewhat simply and crudely, but that's how I would, you know, interpret this passage and impart the importance of this passage to my students. 
Yeah, I love how you draw attention to the specific details and their their how their concreteness, like the lack of adjectives and the way that it's the pasteboard box. I, I think that like there's a way that that this this technique focuses on things as they are, kind of in air quotes. Oh, I love that you say that. Because I, I was actually just literally just thinking about I've been reading up a bit on phenomenology lately you know, the philosophical discipline of phenomenology, which is really all about looking at things as they are, stripping away all its surroundings. And I think, you know, that very much, you know, Shklovsky and the notion of defamiliarization is very much anticipating phenomenology as well in that respect. Yeah. Well, let's talk. I, I feel like phenomenology also tips into the moral. So let's talk about the the way that this doesn't just kind of like expose to us the artificiality of the opera stage, but also can be a vehicle for art to shine a light on or help us see aspects of society that, that may be invisible to us, but that are are more negative. I know Tolstoy does this and you also you also draw up the example of Toni Morrison using kind of a similar technique. So can you just draw out for us how this could could help us understand the social ills of society a little bit better? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, as a concept, defamiliarization is hugely practical, I suppose is a good word, in terms of thinking about then, well, writing, you know, the create the link between writing and social justice, but also then, you know, thinking even outside of writing and thinking about the practice of social justice in a broader sense. Uh, like you said, you know, Shklovsky then in the essay cites other works of Tolstoy, where Tolstoy's uh, writing explicitly is writing about in a much more political sense and using defamiliarization to impart to the reader or to expose to the reader social injustice. Uh, Shklovsky quotes from one of Tolstoy's story that's written from the perspective of a horse and the horse is reflecting on the notion of private property and he's talking about how as a horse he's an object he's a commodity he has an owner he's not you know he has no autonomy and so this concept of private property and the notion of commodities and commodity fetishism and ownership and capitalism is really unraveled by Tolstoy in this story simply by having the POV of a horse rather than the owner of the horse and present to us the notion of private property and ownership is really odd, you know. The horse just can't grapple with the fact of like, how on earth could I be this object, this commodity that's owned? Yeah, I, I like that. That struck out to me too, how the, the horse is reflecting, it, there are these veterinarians and trainers who treat me very nicely and are are you know the people I spend my days with, but they're not according to this human concept of private property. My owners, my owner might be somebody who I only see once a year, and he treats me horribly. And I, I like Tolstoy kind of concludes that story by saying the horse kind of reflecting like you know obviously the civilization of horses is at a more evolved and higher level than that of humans because we don't believe in such ridiculous concepts as private property. Yeah, he absolutely turns all these concepts that we take for granted on their head. Toni Morrison and her novel Beloved is one I've used recently as an example of a writer enacting defamiliarization. And in terms of then her use of defamiliarization specifically and how it relates to the connection between writing and social justice, 
Shklovsky is really clear that the function of defamiliarization is for the writer to both present to the reader things anew, so the layers of mystification we have in front of our eyes about certain things we might take for granted is stripped away, and also for us to be witnesses, to be watchers. He has that beautiful passage from Tolstoy's diary where you know he mentions this idea that, that you know if no one is watching something that occurs, it could be as if it never happened. So clearly, I think Morrison in Beloved, in her unique way, was really writing and defamiliarizing, imparting multiple techniques, really, I think, you know, working on many levels to present to the reader the horrors of slavery as if we're encountering them for the first time and as if we're somehow encountering them both as insiders and outsiders. And, you know, I don't have that passage in front of me right now, but what I would say Morrison does is that she just tackles language on such a heightened level. You know, beloved, every sentence is operating at this level that's it's almost like electricity. It's really, really heightened. And she shifts dynamics all the time and moves between a more objective way of describing things then to a much more sensuous way. And she moves back and forth between horror and beauty in a way that's really complicated. So it's very dazzling. And I think it's just constantly forcing the reader to relate to the horror she's describing in this very material and corporeal and profoundly embodied way. You know, she's so much about writing the body and writing the black body, writing the black female body. And to be specific about the scene of this like formerly enslaved woman who is with, I believe her child is like seeing the lash marks on her back from a horrible whipping she endured while she was enslaved. And that exact heightened description that's both poetic and lyrical and very immediate and personal forces us to see this wound and this scar that this woman has carries on her body and to see it through like the eyes of her child almost. I'm not sure if I'm getting this these details quite right, but I wanted to go to the specific example. Yeah, no, I, I think pretty much you are. And it just reminds me both that, you know, Morrison's use of defamiliarization in, in Beloved, it reminds us that defamiliarization, you know, it's, it's an aesthetic concept, but it's also a very, I would say, emotional or phen- phenomenological concept in that it forces us not just to see things in you, but it forces us to feel things. And Shklovsky is very specific that that's its function. It's not just about writing the world so the reader sees it afresh, but that so the reader has an emotional experience. And Beloved is just such a stunning example of that. It, it also reminds me that, and I'm going to misquote her, but I think the irony is also that Morrison has said at one point in an interview that Tolstoy, in terms of Tolstoy, specifically, I believe in terms of Tolstoy, you know, Tolstoy wasn't writing for someone with her positionality as a black woman born in the 20th century. So there's a kind of a nice irony that this concept can, that concept that, you know, really came about, as you said at the start of our session, you know, in 1917 in Russia, can then be reconfigured to work really beautifully Uh, within Morrison's, you know, writing landscape later on in the 20th century. Yeah. Listening to you talk and seeing the way that Toni Morrison uses defamiliarization specifically to help us see and understand 
from a personal level, like the experience of the black female body through history and through slavery reminds me of another great writer of that same topic, Octavia Butler, who in her in her novel Kindred sends a contemporary like middle class black woman through a kind of a science fictional trope into the antebellum South, where she is then forced into slavery. And that's another way of defamiliarizing because she comes into this world not knowing any of its customs and not being used to any any of it. Sorry, that's just something something that came up as another example. Yeah, I mean, it's great. It's just, I think it's the most important thing about this concept is that, you know, shifting it from, you know, a more abstract concept to one where we can begin to see concrete examples of writers from multiple positions enacting it to their own means. And, you know, specifically thinking about writing as a way to reconfigure history and reframe the world. Yeah, and it it really gets to writing as a way to change readers to like force them to have an experience that that may actually change their soul in some way. Yeah, you know, and change writers as well in terms of just reminding us as we're looking at our sentences and as if we're struggling with a piece in terms of what we're trying to do that this is one tool we can use I guess to wake ourselves up in terms of our own writing projects. Yeah, I want to. We're nearing the end of our of our time, but I want to. I want to ask you about your own writing. You're a writer and have spent decades writing. You've published these two novels, and I, I wonder do you do you consciously think like ah this scene could use some defamiliarization? <laughs> I'm going to defamiliarize, but if not, like how do these ideas inform your own writing? I would say, probably in a fairly unconscious way. I know for myself personally, in terms of this concept. I don't consciously think to myself, oh, yeah, like you say, mm, this scene could use a little defamiliarization. <laughs> I think what, for me, I know both as a writer and a teacher where this concept is useful, it's where we've done something and then we go back to it and we say, oh, this is what I'm doing in this scene. And also, you know, I feel like often when I talk to my students, they've done a piece of writing and then after the seminar, they've, they've seen, oh, okay, so this is what I'm doing. As a concept, it's so fundamental like I remember one of the very first times I taught the seminar where I mainly look at examples from prose. A poet said, oh, I feel like this is what all poetry does, essentially. You know, this is the essential function of poetry. And I, I both agreed and disagreed because I feel it's just like it's what we should be doing all the time, but just in a multiplicity of ways. Yeah, I love that. And I love the restoring the stoniness of the stone really feels like a, a poetic way of phrasing even the, the question of it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, just before the, the podcast, I was doing my daily walk and I was really just pausing here and then just to look at the bees on a lavender plant. And the way, you know, the concept, it's I really encourage people listening to this to go read the essay because, you know, Shklovsky gets a lot more specific in terms of the different techniques we can use to defamiliarize. But I'm also just very interested in it as a simple, it almost has a kind of a Zen Buddhist notion of just, okay, look at something, strip it of all its our assumptions around it and our preconceived notions of it, and simply just describe the thing as it is. So it can be both a complicated concept, but I think it can also be used in just a really much more sort of, you know, very minimalist, almost simple, concrete way of just stripping things away and describing things as is, exposing that that stoniness of the stone is 
as you mentioned. Yeah, I, I really love listening to you talk about this idea. And, you know, maybe as a closing thought, one trend that I've, that I've seen in discussions of literature over the last 15 years or so that I've been active in the literary space is people trying to justify why writing matters. And you see this, there's, there's such an emphasis on like STEM curricula of, you know, science technology. And then people are like, no, the STEAM curricula, we can shoehorn an A right in the middle there. And that's the arts. And, you know, I, I feel like the, the humanities feel under siege and there have been people trying to say, oh, well, you know, this study that psychologists did shows that people who read novels are more empathetic. And that's always felt to me like a kind of very defensive justification for why we read. And I feel like this idea of defamiliarization offers a more concrete idea of how reading and, and one that feels more accurate to me of how reading widely and, and the act of writing can actually make us more present in our world. It's, it, it bridges the spiritual and the political of our understanding the world better and maybe being able to move through it in, in, a, in a more open and receptive way. Yeah, I love that you frame it in that way because, yeah, personally, I often find myself quite, I'm quite skeptical of the notion that writing and literature intrinsically makes better humans. I've always been another writer, theorist, philosopher with a big impact on me as an undergrad was George Steiner, you know, who was writing about literature and the Holocaust and really wrote about the idea that, you know, the Nazis would be uh, working in the concentration camps during the day and then would go home at night and read Goethe and Rilke and listen to Beethoven. So it kind of really schooled me in the idea that, yeah, literature has some kind of intrinsic value that somehow, you know, creates greater empathy in us. But I love the fact that you you kind of, in some ways, remind me that in terms of Shklovsky's notion that, yeah, perhaps we can't make such grand claims about writing or literature, but we can think about it in a more micro sense, just these specific techniques we can enact to at least on a psychological or a phenomenological or perceptual level, just to make us pay more attention to the world. And that perhaps that is kind of a small way of beginning to then be more, as you say, more receptive to the world around us. And then, you know, we can see clearly that then a writer like Morrison then use the technique in a very concrete way to really then explicitly make that leap and take the concept and then give it a kind of a political and historical resonance. So it, it really seems it's up to specific writers then to make the technique come alive in a, an explicitly sort of political sense, perhaps. I love I love that. And I think that that maybe is a good place for us to end this conversation on yeah. the on the that idea that it it has this power but it's it's ultimately up to writers and readers to make sure that we're using that for good. Yeah, and thank you for just, you know, we teach these things, right? But then it wakes me back up to the possibilities of the concept. So thanks, Jasper. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Such a pleasure to get to speak with you. The MFA and undergraduate programs that Alistair teaches in are both at Antioch, Los Angeles, and we will link to them in our show notes. 
We'll also link there to his two novels, The End of the World Book and The Disintegrations. In the first sentence of the acknowledgments to The Disintegrations, Alastair thanks Kirsten Grimstad, another Antioch professor who we actually got to interview back in season one. And we're gonna link to that great conversation as well in the show notes. We post these show notes on our website, theseedfield.org, where you'll also find full episode transcripts, prior episodes, and more. The Seedfield podcast is produced by Antioch University. Our editor is Lauren Instanez. A special thanks to Karen Hamilton and Melinda Garland. Thank you for spending your time with us today. That's it for this episode. We hope to see you next time. And don't forget to plant a seed, sow a cause, and win a victory for humanity. From Antioch University, this has been the Seedfield Podcast. Podcast.